0: Hey, everybody. My name is Christopher Lynn. I am just coming to life here on the Inking of Immunity podcast, but I just want to let my co-hosts introduce themselves. Mike, tell them about yourself.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Mike Smetana. I'm a PhD student at the University of Alabama studying biocultural medical anthropology and uh, working with Chris on some really cool tattoo research.
2: Hi, my name's Becky. I'm a psychologist. I'm a well, senior lecturer in psychology over in the UK.
0: We're launching our second season. We have live this season, if you're on up and on Facebook, Dr. Lars Krutek. Lars, I was going to ask you to make sure I got this right before we went live, but I'm just going to do it now anyway. And Tell me how to pronounce your last name. Am I saying it right? You nailed it. Krutek. Slovak. Slovak proud right here. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, uh, Lars, as I'm going to call him, you can call him Dr. Krutek. You can also call him the Tattoo Hunter. He's the foremost tattoo anthropologist in the world. He is an anthropologist, photographer, and I'm reading right from his Wikipedia page. Thank God he's got a Wikipedia page because he's done so much. And um, he's a writer known for a huge volume of research about tattooing, which should surprise no one since we are tattoo researchers and this is a tattoo podcast. And we are here to talk to him about some of the many adventures he's had, including producing and hosting a 10-part documentary series called Tattoo Hunter that you may be familiar with that was on the Discovery Channel for a period uh, in which he traveled the world talking to indigenous peoples all over about the vanishing art form of body modification. Uh, He's also one of the editors of Ancient Ink. He's got a number of books. But why don't we just launch right into it? Lars, the first thing we always want to hear about from folks is why they got into the discipline they got into. And for you, you're an anthropologist like Mike and I, I would love to hear from you, like how you got into anthropology and tattooing and and, and became that expert that I just talked about.
3: It's a long story. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, I guess you could say the formative experience was my father was a professor of geology and, and this is how old I am, 79, 80, 81. He had a sabbatical At UNAM in Mexico City because most of his research was in um, coastal areas across Mexico and so during the summer times we would travel to just about every Mesoamerican archaeological site and so I think that really sort of instilled in me like interest in ancient history and architecture and art history and I carried that into undergraduate studies but there, um, I attended University of Colorado. I found art history, really, uh, as an undergraduate. I was studying anthropology. I thought I was gonna be an archeologist. And then I started taking art history courses, which my mother was really into. So fast forward you know, to my first salaried position right out of college as I moved to San Francisco and started working in the art world. And I just worked for a small gallery that just happened to be right around the corner from Ed Hardy's Tattoo City in North Beach. Wow. So, I didn't have any tattoos. I didn't know anything about tattoos. Our gallery that I worked for, I was the preparator. We had some tribal art there, but mainly like we had some Mesoamerican pieces but we had some Dogon ladders and things from West Africa, and whatever. But I also had a friend at that time who was learning to tattoo. And so, you know, tattoo was sort of in the back of my mind. I, again, I didn't have anything. I, you know, I would look in at Hardy's Tattoo City in the window on occasion, see what's going on in there. And then I was in San Francisco for about a year, and then I attended the University of Alaska Fairbanks for graduate studies. And within a week, I was walking across campus. I came across, well, I later found out who this person was, Uh, But she was a a Gwich'in, Koyukan, Athabascan woman, elder, linguist, writer, Adeline Raboff. I I got to know her a little bit later. And she had three chin tattoos, like three lions, which in California they call them triple ones. And I was like, wow, I... I didn't even know that there was any tattooing in Alaska, certainly not in Fairbanks. And I was really sort of interested in that. So I just started digging in the archives there. They have a great polar archive there, University of Alaska Fairbanks. And I started finding all these accounts from explorers and ethnographers about tattooing, but it seemed like it disappeared for a variety of reasons. And so I was like, you know, I I didn't know what I was going to do for my, my master's. You know, like a lot of students are like, knows but i wanted to sort of bridge art history and anthropology in some way shape or form and i thought well maybe since it seems like no one's done any research on indigenous tattooing in the circumpolar north for a hundred years according to what i was reading in the you know old books uh maybe this is something i should look into and so i eventually started learning more and accumulating more you know archival information because a lot of there's a lot of great unpublished resource material in the archives in um university of leslie Fairbanks. and then someone told me about a small community in Bering Strait off the coast of Nome called St. Lawrence Island. And there were two villages there. And there was approximately a dozen elderly women, you know, in their eighties to upper nineties that had the traditional skin stitch tattoos. And there was still a tattoo artist alive who was about 97 at the time. So I wrote um, to both village councils asking for, for permission to even go there and ask if I might be able to conduct this study and interview the last tattoo bears. but when I was working with these elders you know they kept on emphasizing the fact that you know Smithsonian anthropologists University of Alaska anthropologists archaeologists have always been coming 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 here mm. taking 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 and never giving anything back and so that always stuck in my head like whatever I research I do in the future it needs to go back to the source community the home community because you will be the ones to move this forward and take it to the future generations not me
2: yeah So Chris mentioned before that you did a show on the Discovery Channel called Tattoo Hunter back in 2009. So I was wondering whether it was that show that kind of afforded you the opportunity to go and learn more about so many, you know, previously unknown Indigenous tattoo cultures, or was there something within that gap Mm -hmm. there?
3: So I go back to St. Lawrence Island again, Um, you know, I finished my master's in 98, but these women instilled in me that you know no one was really interested in our stories and they certainly weren't interested in our tattoos even from a local perspective and that stuck with me because i, f- I started thinking well okay this is a very remote place but how many other indigenous communities there are remote remote locations around the world are their tattoo elders their stories aren't being recorded this cultural heritage is being lost and so i thought i need to start traveling I need to start getting involved in some way, shape or form to get to Asia, to get to South America, to get different places, to get to Europe actually, and to start recording this information. And, and I, you know, I don't know what I was going to do with it. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't written any books. I, I wasn't writing for magazines or anything like that. I had no idea, but just to, to preserve it. Cause honestly, most of my book projects take 10 to 15 years. The one I'm writing right now, I started 19 years ago.
1: Wow. So
3: I'm really thorough um, about doing my research and I feel like I need to compile, you know, really good detailed body of information and do a lot of interviews before I publish it. So anyway, long story short, between 1998 and 2002, I worked in the Balkans. (laughs) This is one of my jobs to earn money so I could travel. I, mean, I was a dog walker. I was a roofer. I <laughs> worked construction. I mean, come on. Uh, it's not like this is just handed it to me, you know, and it's really, it was really hard to find funding to do tattoo research back then. I mean, I bar- could barely get any funding to go to St. Lawrence Island for my university. And I certainly wasn't getting NSF awards mm. or social science research council awards or anything like that, because no one understood why tattooing could be important. How it could be important. Mm. Why do we need yeah. to document this information? So, I mean, it, now I think it's, people are getting, I don't know, all kinds of money, but I, I certainly couldn't find any back in the day, so I just did it myself. I worked in um, Bosnia first in 1988, that's where I found out about sort of Bosnian Catholic tattooing, and then I lived in Kosovo off and on for about a year and a half over three missions, and then my last mission was in 2002 there, and I decided to meet my wife in northern Greece. I heard about this small group, some people call them the Vlachs. some call them Aramanians and... I dragged my future wife up and down the Pindos Mountains around Metsovo and northern Greece looking for a t- tattooed woman. women. <laughs> um, and I knew that they had an ancient tattooing tradition that goes back thousands of years. And we did find two women. Um, unfortunately, one was on her deathbed, so we weren't allowed to visit her. But I recorded whatever information I could. And then we met uh, the second one in her garden. She was like 94 years old. And the tattoo I really wanted to see was the crucifix on her forehead, but she had fallen in her garden two days ago and her whole entire forehead was bruised black, but she did have a big faded, uh, cruciform mark on her forearm. And so we got to know, you know, a little bit there. So I pieced together that information and wrote, I started writing for tattoo magazines there. Um, so I combined it with a story about the leading family of tattoo artists in, um, Athens. And then immediately after that trip, I was invited to go to Borneo, Uh, Strangely enough, through writing I had been doing for this tattoo website, which still exists Mm -hmm. uh, by some Canadian friends, The Vanishing Tattoo, and they had pitched um, a documentary series to go and uh, shoot amongst the Ebon of Borneo and Mm -hmm. sort of tell more about the story of Ebon tattooing and its association with various aspects of their culture. So I was... I went there as the still photographer. And so after that shoot was over, I traveled into the hinterlands to work with several other groups that I'd heard about, but I didn't know much about. So the Orang Ulu or upriver people up the Rajang River and just recorded again, whatever I could find, you know, from taboos to other spiritual traditions related to tattooing, rite of passage tattoos, warrior culture, anything, everything. In the thinking that I could perhaps, in some you know way, in the future, I could bring all this together and produce a story. But again, that that material sort of languished for quite some time. So uh, then I then there was like this gap of time between 2003 and 2007, where I attended uh, Arizona State University for my PhD. Now there's really no career in tattoo anthropology or Boys. being a tattoo anthropologist not back then there was it. maybe today. <laughs> teaching all these body art classes in universities certainly no one was offering those classes you know the history of body modification i mean they would have you know they would have thought i was crazy if i was trying to offer that class so anyway i went there to uh study cultural tourism um and its effects on indigenous artisans and in the copper canyon of northern mexico because again this goes back to my formative time in mexico i Went back to Mexico. I often traveled back to Mexico with my family because my father always had research interests there. And we we had gone on a train trip in northern Mexico to the Barranca del Cobre, which is this amazing canyon. It's twice as big as the Grand Canyon. Some people don't really know about it. in North America, there this beautiful train trip that goes through. So anyway, we met some indigenous people that live there. Um, there's several indigenous groups, but the the largest is sort of famous. Um, the Terahumaro, as they're known more famously, but the Raramuri, and they're known for their long-distance running. But anyway, I decided to go back there and work with these artisans, um, and so while I was there and finishing my field work in 2006, I had the opportunity to use a satellite internet feed from the missionaries that were working in the village where I was living. And I got this email um, from a production company saying, hey, we see some of your work on the Vanishing Tattoo website. You ought to try out to be the host for this show that we have tentatively called, you know, Tattoo Hunter. And so I was like, okay, sure. And then after that, yes, I we traveled all over the globe over the course of a year and a half. And visited many other groups that I probably would have never been able to get to in my lifetime.
1: That's so cool. So Mike here for everybody listening. I think a good point to make is you've you've really committed and made uh, a real effort to return to to all these places that you've been to and, and develop that relationship over the long term. So I think that's that's really great. Something I hope to do in my in my own work eventually. So far we've heard so many places you've traveled around to the Philippines, to the Balkans, around Europe, Papua New Guinea, and the, the Tattoo Hunter. And you've been across native North America, native Alaska, to St. Lawrence Island. So that's a lot of traveling. And to start out doing it on, on your own dime, that's, that's pretty great as well. For, for who? That's
3: pretty great for who? <laughs>
1: <laughs> was it good that's for my great.
3: back and my
1: joints. But we'll talk about we'll talk about joy yeah. in a little bit. <laughs> right. So, are there any particular styles or stories or discoveries that have really stuck with you throughout your career?
3: Um, honestly, I cherish you know all of these experiences, all these friendships that I've made over the years, and I, I can't say that anything really sticks out of my mind more than others because it's always you know a unique journey, um, unique people that I'm working with and meeting but i'd have to say that you know what drives me to do this research is that i really enjoy you know working with local collaborators who become my partners ultimately in my projects as i noted earlier they've often become you know long-standing friends over the years and together we i feel that we attempt to create you know a detailed record of tattooing history through telling stories about its practitioners recipients functions and why this unique medium of cultural expression forms a significant part of the human experience, no matter where it is performed. And even though I've been conducting this research for God, almost 25 years now, traditional tattooing continues to be fairly unrecognized as part of our world's global artistic and cultural heritage. And we, me, my partners and I want to change this perception because it should be celebrated, it should be given a voice. Um, It links humanity, and I feel like it shouldn't become relegated to the dustbin of history or anthropology for that matter. And the other thing is, is that there are many tribal elders and tattoo bearers who are out there, and I know this for sure, that still haven't had their stories told and their knowledge recorded. So that really drives me to push on to go to the remote hinterlands, but I can't tell you how many times... I have come across an elder or a warrior or another individual who is the last bearer of a particular tattoo in their village or who has knowledge of a rite or a taboo associated with tattooing that no one else remembers. So, if you don't get out there and into the field and document it, this knowledge could become lost forever. Um, and I think that's a shame. And, case in point, so. Just a couple of days ago on Sunday, as a matter of fact, um, I was trying to learn about a tattoo that I had never seen worn before, but a friend of mine, um, a cultural tattoo practitioner, Mo Naga, I think about five or six years ago, he was in this one village in Nagaland photographing a Pachuri Naga woman, but he didn't record her name. And she and I was looking at the front of her leg, like uh, her shins and her knee, and I saw this, this triple X marking on her knee, uh, kneecap above and below it. And I was like, So Mo, uh, what was that? (laughs) I've never seen it before, and I was curious about it. And he said, I didn't record it. I would not been to this village where this woman was photographed. And I found out that this was an insurance policy, so to say, because amongst this Naga group, you're allowed to gain access to the afterlife based on the tattoos you have. You could be recognized by your ancestors. But this particular mark is looked for by this spirit who's the guardian of the afterlife. And if you don't have it, he may deny you entrance into the afterlife. Hmm. So there, there are a lot of tattoos associated with the afterlife, especially amongst the Naga. But I don't think we have time for that. We can, we can discuss that later. Ne- okay. Next time, yeah,
0: would... yeah,
3: next time, next.
0: So before you started publishing, there weren't any good books out on cross-cultural tattooing. But even in one of the ones that came out early on, the Modern Primitives had an interview with Lyle Tuttle that talked about where tattoos might've come from and warriors have always been tattooed and talk about making it tougher. And maybe it's because it does something with their antibodies. And that's what really got me started thinking about uh, health aspects. And you've written extensively on the therapeutic benefits of tattooing. So this therapeutic aspect is really, really, really fascinating to us. And I got to say, I, I honed in on, I think it's from your master's work, the combinations of charcoal and urine and some of the the maybe byproduct elements. I don't think you insinuated in any way that people were purposely thinking of these things as antibacterial or antimicrobial, but there are just layers and layers of therapy and spiritual protection going on in some of these tattoos. And I wonder if you could tell us your insights from there and and where else you've seen this kind of tattooing.
3: Yeah, I guess you could say I was lucky to, I mean, my first experience working in the field was on St. Lawrence Island, but they happened to have this particular um, tradition that had since passed of joint marking in relationship to people that had served as a pallbearer or had made their first kill. And across the circumpolar north and other locations around the world, there are beliefs where a person doesn't have one soul, they have multiple souls and they reside in the primary joints. So when you come into close contact with a deceased human or animal, it's sort of a dangerous time because you could be susceptible to that disembodied spirit looking for a new home. And the first person they're attracted to is obviously the person who's closest to them. So if you're a bear at a funeral, you know, you're in direct contact. Um, if you just kill the polar bear or harpooned a walrus, uh, well, that spirit is looking for a new home. And so there was a tradition of joint marking um, with these substances that you mentioned, and all of them locally were believed to be apotropaic, so to repel evil spirits. And The belief was, you know, all maladies basically were the result of malevolent spirits attempting to enter the body and harm it. And the passageways into the body are where the seats of the souls are located, which are these primary joints. So after the funeral and right after the first kill, a person received a set of these markings, typically two dots at these primary joints. And so when I was conducting my research for my master's thesis and writing up my uh, thesis, I'm like, you know, that's really interesting. I mean, then I learned about the Iceman and I'm like, well, look at all these tattoos on the Iceman. They Mm. seem to be lined up at the primary joints. And I was at an impasse writing my master's thesis. And then I started thinking, well, hell, you know, let's look at all of these joint markings on St. Lawrence Island. I'm going to line up with a a classical acupuncture chart. And Mm. I asked the elders on St. Lawrence Island, what would happen if you didn't mark these joints? What would be the result? And they were like... Perhaps possession, insanity, but mainly arthritis. Your your limbs would shrivel up and you'd die, but you would be in this racked by arthritis. So, astonishingly, um, you know, all of these locations lined up with classical acupuncture points to treat arthritic conditions. So, I was thinking, well, hmm, that's pretty fascinating. And so, I just sort of threw it out there as. There could be some kind of relationship i wasn't saying that you know acupuncture diffused from china to the bering strait and somehow was picked up and morphed into this tattooing tradition i didn't say anything like that i was just suggesting the interesting comparison that there could be some kind of relation and then i started looking elsewhere in the arctic and of course there was a lot of joint marking happening you know on the Aleutian chain and other inuit regions um and then of course. There are mummies, the Pazric mummies, that Sergei Rudenko excavated you know, long ago in Siberia. And this famous Pazric chief also has dot-like tattoos in the same location as the Iceman. And they are ex- exact same locations that were tattooed on St. Lawrence Island to repel the advances of evil spirits. But, you know, not only acupuncture points, but meridians are also fairly significant when we're talking about the Iceman. You know, acupuncture is a form of alternative medicine that's believed to originate in China about 100 BC and it relies upon the insertion of like thin needles into the body along acupoints and meridians, but mostly for musculoskeletal pain relief. Now meridians are specific pathways that connect the internal organs with specific points that are located on the skin, often in close proximity to nerves and blood vessels. As many of the Iceman's leg tattoos are associated with known acupuncture points located on the gallbladder, spleen, or liver meridian, and used by contemporary acupuncturists to treat abdominal disorders, the Iceman's tattoos, I believe, are considered evidence of a similar medicinal practice and uh, prehistory. Now, as you may remember... Um, researchers at the Yurok Institute for the Iceman in 2015, through new photographic techniques, they discovered new tattoos on the Iceman's torso mm. that they suggested were related to alleviating chest pain, unrelated to his osteoarthritis, but connected to his gallstones, ethereal sclerosis, and whipworm infection, conditions that must have caused him intense discomfort. Now, although these researchers who found these tattoos did not directly address the possible relationships between them and specific acupoints or meridians. They just suggested it was perhaps a medicinal therapy. I consulted a friend here in the DC area where I live, I live in Washington, DC, who is a licensed acupuncturist. She reported that most of the acupuncture points near the Iceman's chest tattoo could be used to treat the symptoms associated with whipworms. And Hmm. those would be like abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, gallstones, as well as breathing issues that he probably had and then i published these results um and afterwards you know additional studies started coming out about uh how these tattoos could be employed for the treatment of intestinal disorders now if we want to go back to your question and maybe speak about the origins of acupuncture and these you know indigenous traditions of medicinal tattooing i mean i believe that numerous peoples around the world uh through experimentation trial and error or perhaps just random luck originally recognized the therapeutic potential of needling the joints uh, sometimes with pigments of medicinal plants. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's been documented in North America and other places um, to relieve sprains and arthritic complaints. And I recently published at least two tables illustrating the near global distribution of these medicinal tattooing practices over the course of my field of research. I've also encountered joint tattooing similar to the Iceman in places such as Borneo, Nagaland, and even Papua New Guinea. And whether or not any of these global traditions gave rise to what we know as acupuncture is really anybody's guess. However, and something that I'm working on right now, sort of secret, <laughs> I should note do, do tell. Uh, <laughs> that prehistoric mortuary urns and other ceramic vessels dating to the Mijiaujou culture of Northern China, which is about 3,300 to 2,000 BC feature very realistic female human heads bearing chin nose and other facial markings and these painted figures closely resemble ethnographic traditions of female tattooing still extant in southwest china myanmar northwest india and siberia and some of these indigenous peoples practiced medicinal tattooing in the recent past moreover if you're a student of chinese language and characters In the Chinese lexicon, the contemporary term for tattoo is based on the first millennium BC Han character, Wen, which also means to write. And today, Wen embodies literacy, cultural sophistication, and civilization, but the original character for Wen is believed to be derived from a tattooed individual, perhaps a northern indigenous barbarian Hmm. with a marked chest. So the ancient practice of acupuncture, as I noted at the top, started in China approximately 2,100 years ago and was first codified as an organized system of diagnosis and treatment. But the character for Wen predates that by almost a 1,000 years. So is it possible that a local indigenous prehistoric Chinese group practiced medicinal tattooing of the joints and other bodily locations that in turn inspired the local development acupuncture? I don't know. It's interesting to think about. I don't think we'll ever know. But Yeah. You know. But I'll, um you know I'm I'm hopefully in my next project which is actually it's a big book 19 years in the making people it covers tattooing traditions across asia
0: one of the things that that jumped out at me that I just wanted to say really quick is your your point about probably trial and error sounds right for most human endeavors and there when it works it it sticks right so there are so many references in Varying tattoo literatures of things like I can just remember Albert Perry's book from the early 20th century where he's writing about the early period of electric tattooing how these old sailors would come into the Bowery in New York City and get inkless tattoos on joints. And when I was working in uh, American Samoa and Samoa, and I and I had some people show me pictures of some of the, the wrist tattoos that they got specifically. Uh, over joints and how they had gotten tattoo treatments from gout, and the Suez even talk about how they will do fake tattoos or air tattoos on babies' faces with birthmarks that supposedly cause the birthmarks to to stop growing. And I hear so many of those stories when I'm in the field. Um, I'm looking forward to your book. It sounds like you have some of that ground well covered.
3: Well, you know, the thing is, is that. I think a lot of these therapeutic tattoos were missed, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, because they're usually the smile, little line, Mm -hmm. little circle, and people thought that they're not relevant or there's nothing to those. It was just Mm -hmm. for fun. The kids were, you know, marking themselves, you know, whatever. But I I, oftentimes, you know, I, I find these small tattoos that no one has paid attention to have the most interesting stories to tell. So I'm always asking about it, asking about them, you know, and sure enough, I'm interviewing somebody in Papua New Guinea and I'm like, you guys ever tattoo for medicine is like, Oh, you mean like these little tiny marks on my back? Oh yeah. I've had back pain. And so these really helped me out. Or, you know, I was in the Philippines and um, working with the Kalinga. This was right after we finished tattoo hunter. And I found another instance where uh, a woman had severe eczema on her back and it kept moving, moving, moving up her back. And then <clears throat> the village tattooist tattooed a line across the top of her back. Eczema never moved beyond that point. Hmm. And then then I'm thinking about, you know, whenever I'm out in the field, I find out about these medicinal plants that are applied to the tattoo to promote aftercare. And a lot of them don't have English equivalents or even um, local equivalents for names. Um, But I have sort of like a cabinet full of these plants and I need to get a botanist to try to identify them. So I'm always archiving stuff and I I sometimes don't know what to do with them, but they're pressed in books and they're there. I know I know the local indigenous name, but who knows what? kind of medicinal properties, some of these well, whatever we call it, unknown to science, you know, plants and medical products are that's
1: that's so interesting. It is, it's so
2: interesting.
3: But if you don't ask those questions when you're out in the field, you'll never get answers. So exactly the, the key is to go in, you know, and, and have the right questions to ask. I mean I, I always yeah. kick myself though when I'm flying back in the plane, I'm like for 17 hours, God damn it. Why didn't I ask that obvious follow-up question yeah. about this, that, and the other, but that's another reason why you go back. Right. Or I, what it really bothers me is that, you know, photographers or other people that go out, I'm not talking to anthropologists, but they go out and make these beautiful coffee table books and they don't record the people's names. They mm-hmm. treat them like an object. Yeah. But this woman I just talked about, about, you know, the triple X tattoos on her leg, you know, I'm like, I would really like to publish a photo of her legs, but I want her name. Yeah. And so my contact forgot to ask her name. And then I follow them. Can you call back your friend? I need her name. I know her husband's name. I could call her Mrs. So-and-so, but I really want her first name. <laughs> and so he, he's like, oh, okay, no worries. I forgot. I forgot. Okay. Here it is. Here it is.
0: Yeah. How do you how do you wrestle with that? Actually, you know, I, I think about that when, when I'm writing, do we do the, the typical ethnographic thing where you, you change all the names to protect their identities? Or because we're living in a global world, tattooing is so popular. I mean, I work with the Sulawapé family, who's one of the most famous tattoo families in the world. I'm like, do I use their name? Or if I hide it, everybody knows who they are. What are, you know, the ethics, the, the reality, the journalistic side to all these things? How do you deal with
3: that? Well, you just ask, Yeah, <laughs> I just ask, okay, could I use your name and your image in this project that I'm working on? But way back in the day, you know, when I was running around, let's say Nagaland in 2008, 2010, I didn't have signed consent forms for, for, photography I would just I had a verbal consent mm-hmm. and so a recent project that was with Routledge they're like oh these are beautiful photographs but you don't have a signed consent form when you you know and I'm like well guess what every all these photographs well there's only like four photographs I wanted to publish They're they passed away and I, when I was in a rush in 2008 I didn't even know I was ever going to publish this photograph and I know I have their verbal consent and they're like well we're sorry but we have to blur their faces and you cannot publish their name So then they made me treat them like an object Mm -hmm. and that pissed me off and I understand, I totally understand it. I totally get it. But I mean, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I can't bring people back from the dead to get a form signed and nor nor could I even get it there. And we're talking about a village that you got to hike to still that you, you know, there's no road there. So that's a problem that we will run into and I've run into recently, but I didn't like the outcome. Yeah. If they were underage, I could totally get it. If they were a minor, we're talking about 90-year-old individuals who were excited to actually share information about their tattooing because honestly, most people in their villages, are aren't they're not. Because there's a lot of religious taboos in some of these villages. It was 95% Christian, so they don't want to talk about the old traditions.
0: The uh, the linguist who trained me, the anthropologist who taught that course in body modification, he was half Mohawk. His father remarried a Kiowa Apache woman, and his great uncle was the last living speaker of Kiowa Apache. And he couldn't get the paperwork to interview his own uncle to collect the, the stuff and ended up retiring right after I graduated. Just a big fu for for the whole bureaucratic morass. So colonialism. Uh, lives on in its insidious ways. Uh, We don't have a lot of time, so I want Mike and Becky to have a chance to chat a little bit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you go ahead, Becky?
2: Well, so I was just, I was thinking about, you know, um, the recent kind of, I guess renewed interest in Indigenous and tribal tattoo and practices. And we could, I would say, at least partly attribute that to your work. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the differences between the revitalization of traditional practices or the reinvention of from these traditional practices and whether you see these movements as one or the other.
3: Yeah, well, A, I don't like. Putting words into other people's mouth because, especially tattoo artists, because I'm certainly not a practitioner and I never yeah. will be. I mean, although I, I had given one tattoo and it was on an 88 year old woman, Wang Auto <laughs> guy, who's a very famous tattooist now, but she insisted that I do it and I'll never do that again. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy and I don't have the skills. Uh, but she insisted. Otherwise, she would have kicked me out of her house. But, um, yeah, but the practitioners who have allowed me to share their stories obviously have different feelings about the tattoo movements they're involved in, mm-hmm. especially with regards to who they are tattooing. I think that's something yes. we have to think about because who are their clientele? You know, Some might state their work as a revitalization movement, implying they are attempting to reverse the decline of an extant tattooing tradition among their people. Mm-hmm. And the tattoos I'm speaking about here are not being created for non-Indigenous people who are not actually culturally grounded in these traditions.
1: Mm. For
3: other artists, perhaps they are reinventing cultural tattoos that are partially based on traditional patterns, but they have new design concepts. You know, maybe they have basketry designs or textile patterns that are met and meshed with a tattoo motif or a partial one. So in other words, you know, perhaps people who are reinventing Uh, Cultural tattoos are creating contemporary versions of ancient designs that can be given to non-Indigenous people. So really to return to your question, I think what we all need to be thinking about is who is giving and receiving these tattoos when speaking about revitalization movements, tattoo revivals and tattoo reinventions. But your question also makes me think of the words traditional and traditional practices. I often read in the media about indigenous and non-indigenous tattoo artists who create traditional tattoos. But what does that really mean today? I mean, in most indigenous societies I've worked in, traditional tattooing was highly ritualized. There were rigid and culturally mandated food taboos for the artists and their clients, among many other protocols. And tattoo artists might offer specific prayers and or offerings to ancestors. Particular spirits and even deities um, who were the guardians of these tattooing traditions. And if you didn't do this, you perhaps risked serious injury to you, yourself, or even your community. Now, of course, you know, I know many indigenous and non indigenous tattoo practitioners who treat tattooing today with great ceremony and respect. But I sort of want to return our focus back to the question, you know, for the sake of this conversation mm-hmm. are these tattooing pr- practices traditional mm-hmm. or have they been? re-traditionalized so that latter word implies a remobilization and speaks about the creative imagination and agency of artists to modify and reclaim tattooing through new tattoo patterns and performances but then again as i said earlier regarding revitalization efforts i would defer really to those people who create these tattoos to to explain or define what they believe is
1: traditional
3: and what is not you know that's that's where i'm at
1: Speaking of the the taboos and everything, I while I was surfing the web looking at stuff that you've done, I saw the episode of Tattoo Hunter where you were in Papua New Guinea and you received the, the marks of the crocodile, which was quite interesting to watch. I was wondering if you could talk about some of those taboos and, and traditions that are still in place. And then... I also saw that you were uh, recently on an episode of USA Inc. on Fox Nation. So are there any more kind of television shows in the works? Can we expect to see your face on TV anytime soon again?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so many taboos. Oh, my God. I mean, in my current work, and like this book dealing with Asia, I list so many. I guess people just, I don't know, have not really spent a lot of time recording there's mainly their food taboos, to be honest with you. I mean like chilies, um, salt, anything that would make your uh, tattoos of their healing itchy. Then there's like, you, know, you wouldn't tattoo, let's say, for instance, I'm, I'm thinking about some places in Borneo, someone was recently deceased, um, or you may not tattoo during rice seeding time or harvesting time. There's a lot of cosmological references to some of these taboos as well, like certain lunar phases. And if you didn't obey some of these taboos, your tattoos might become septic. You may die. But, but speaking of the uh, crocodile marks of the conigra, so before you could be tattooed there, you know, there were a lot of different restrictions in the, in, in the house tambourine or the spirit house where the new initiates are, they're basically, they live in there for a period. Well, in world war II, they lived there for up to two years before they were actually cut. And you're basically learning all of the skills and protocols to become a man in the eyes of the community. So when you're eating, you have to face the wall. You can never face out into the open gallery. You can only sit on one side of the house tampering because the other side is reserved for the men that have been initiated. You can only use your hands. You can't use utensils for your food. And then there's certain words you can't say. You can't talk about certain spirits that are embodied in the carvings throughout the men's house. So any, those are just a few, but to get to your questions, there are a couple of productions I'm involved with right now. And prior to COVID, fortunately, um, we returned to Nagaland or I returned to Nagaland, um, for a fifth time with a Dutch film crew. Um, this is a crowdfunded project called the patterns of life. And, uh, it's a four part series sort of visiting four different indigenous groups and speaking about their tattoos and its relations to spirituality and the ancient wisdom and knowledge embodied within tattooing traditions in four locations. However, we managed to shoot two of the episodes before COVID struck. And then the other two are sort of right now in a holding pattern. We know where we want to go. It's just those uh, certain countries have really rigid restrictions and we can't quite get there yet. But this episode revolves around actually, Research that I'm getting ready to publish in a new book that's coming out later this year, maybe in the next couple of months, about Chen Naga warrior tattoos, as well as the last three tiger familiar spirit tattoo bearers, who are these three aristocratic men. Two of them are in their 90s, and one is over 100 years old. (laughs) But it will be all in this. A book chapter that's coming out real soon. But the productions are, so this Patterns of Life episode, hopefully, you know, it'll air sometime at the end of this year. I'm not sure if it's going to come out on a streaming platform or if maybe it will actually premiere in a museum because I'm involved with a big museum exhibition at the Humboldt Forum in Berlin. Um, But there's a big NAGA exhibition that's happening there. And then another project is called Designer Skin, which is a feature-length documentary which sets out to explore sort of the top photorealism tattoo artists globally and i'm involved in sort of grounding it into a historical context we actually have a really beautiful ootsie recreation scene of him receiving his tattoos but sort of foregrounding you know how tattooing has become a fine art form but also how did it get there you know where it came from there's some really high profile tattoo artists and people in the tattoo world that are in there and i'm just sort of grounding everything together um sort of from an anthropological perspective and hopefully you know That'll be in a, a major streaming platform um, sometime later this year. Wow. There's other things in the works, but I have to, I can't say. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: well,
0: folks can probably find out if they follow along with your website. You you, may, you keep that
3: up, larskrutak.com? Yeah, exactly. So the bibliography there, there's a bibliography page that lists you know, new publications coming in the pipeline. Of course, if there's any new announcements about that, uh, about media projects, they'll be there. And also, I, I curate a lot. So I have a few exhibitions. You know, I mentioned the Humboldt Forum, but there's a show I curated that's traveling to Scandinavian American museums. It's called Tattoo Identity Inc. But it really sort of focuses on Scandinavian tattoo history. After the Museum of Danish America, it'll go to a couple other institutions across the U.S. And who knows, maybe beyond. Wonderful.
0: Lars, we're going to talk to you again, man. This has been such a pleasure. So thank you so
3: much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to future ones, too.
0: And thank next you, time, either at the end of the day or more coffee, because I want to hear more of these stories. This is this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm
3: empty. I'm empty. I need some. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Lars. All right. Bye. You. bye. Bye. Bye.